Well, hello, friends, and welcome back to the Compelling Community Podcast. So glad that you're joining us here for a conversation about chapter 11. We are in the home stretch of this book. Mm-hmm. This is the second to last chapter of what has been, I think, just a really fruitful time of conversation and reflection, certainly between the two of us, Jonathan, here on this podcast, and hopefully our friends out there listening at home. Uh, so one of the main things I've heard from, uh, main questions that I've heard from folks as they've tracked with us through this book um, has been about uh, how do we balance our deep investment in our local church, prioritizing our relationships with one another, trying to work on this deep and broad and supernatural connection that we have, knowing that that's what honors God, brings Him glory. How do we balance that with the Bible's call to us to be engaged with people who don't know Jesus yet? Evangelism and mission. It seems like if you just spend all your time going deep with one another, there's no time left over for connecting with neighbors who don't know Jesus or, or, or seeking out new friendships with people who don't know Jesus or focusing on what's going on around the world, for example. So are we at risk of an insular community with a, a kind of a ostrich head in the sand approach to the world around us if we really embrace the vision that this book has, has put in front of us that we believe is true to the Bible? I think that's a wonderful question. I'm so glad people have asked me that. And it brings us to the, to the next two chapters in this book. Um, the, 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 the fourth part of the book is called The Community at Work. It doesn't mean in the workplace, literally. It means doing work for God's kingdom out in the world mm-hmm. as a community uh, of people who love one another in a supernatural way. And it's reminded me of an, of an image early on in the book. Um, I don't remember what chapter this came out in, but the authors recommended that, um, that, that we invest deeply in our life together as a church because the best way to heat a, a wide area is not to take a bunch of coals and spread them around, but to heap them up together in one central place where their heat is exponentially more powerful and then spreads from that central pile of coals throughout the whole house. This chapter on evangelism helps us see that in practice. It calls us to a way of engaging through evangelism that, that depends on a heaped-up pile of hot coals burning hot with one another and then, and then spreading through the world. So that's the topic for today, and I want to start with a, a, a phrase that comes up early in the chapter, a, a model for evangelism that these guys... Uh, think is is the way to go, that I want to make sure is clear to everybody out there and and for us to evaluate it, whether or not it makes sense for us. They refer to the kind of evangelism, therefore, as mob evangelism. Jonathan, what do you make of that term, both what they mean by it and and whether it's worth pursuing? Yeah, well, I don't think it's a... Um... It's a theological term, but, I, <laughs> yeah. but I, did, I did like it and kind of brought to mind the Ant Hill mob from Wacky Races and those little guys kind of running away in cars. I don't know if you remember that. Um, Is that a British thing? I... No, no, I think, I think it's American. I mean, it's an American Hill? cartoon, Wacky Races. There's this kind of little team of guys who kind of sprint towards the finish in their little car. Anyway, we, we digress. <laughs> Sounds but, awesome. <laughs> but I guess what they mean by it is... Is, is working together, a working together evangelism. It's, it's group evangelism, it's team evangelism, it's, it's local church evangelism, everyone working together, which I think is really striking because I think the vast majority of us, when we think about evangelism, think about a one-to-one conversation mm-hmm. or a, a preacher. We perhaps think about, you know, the sole preacher out in the fields, the kind of the Whitfield and mm-hmm. the Wesleys preaching 
or we think of a, a kind of in the modern era going out for coffee with someone sharing our testimony sharing the gospel with them one one on one um but if i understand this chapter rightly what the things that they're they're pushing for um is the the, the power of doing uh, that evangelism together as, as as a local church that there's something that is that is beautiful and, and biblical about doing that together where someone might start the conversation then someone else at church might uh, invite them to church and then someone else reads the gospel of mark with them and and so on and in essence it's yeah it's church team effort so not exactly going out into the community as a mob four or five people going door to door knocking on doors or talking to people who walk up on the street but something a lot more loose than that something that's it's still team based but not like you're all it's not like you're going out as 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 mobs of evangelists out to 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 stand on a street corner or something and talk to anyone who'll come up it's it it's touching much more of your life than that it's not a one time thing that you do together but something a life that you build together yeah so it's a recognition of of the body that the body's got many parts and that there's lots of gifts and that is not only for the building up of the church but it's also for the purposes of evangelism so you said that you see this as a beautiful and biblical thing. Let's talk about where it shows up in the Bible. What are the main places you would go to to see it in action there? Yeah, well, I'm in a sense, I think you have to read between the lines slightly uh, because we don't get a we don't get a story in the Bible, at least as far as I can recall, which is like Walter Barrera's testimony, which is right at the start uh, of the chapter where different people from the same church are involved. But I do think we see... Uh, in the start of in the start of the book of Acts, yep. the early part of the life in the church in Jerusalem, and people breaking bread together and devote, devoting themselves to, to fellowship and caring for each other's needs, and then when that happens, uh, we see um, Acts two forty seven, the Lord then adds to their number. Yep. Um, so I think there's there's something that's really at- attractive about that, that corporate element. But honestly, if you look at the Acts passage, you just think, well, these people are just doing everything together. Mm-hmm. They're sharing their lives so much that, that how could evangelism be something that was kind of separate uh, from their lives? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think back to John's gospel as well, another place that this shows up, um, Jesus talking about how people will know that we're his disciples. It'll be through a love for one another that they can see Yeah, that looks like his love for us. Um, that's not exactly a command to go out and evangelize together in a mob, but it's. I think it's recasting what our relate the power of our relationships for evangelism. That it's helping us see that evangelism involves things we might not have thought of as evangelism before. Yep. It isn't just the the door the door to door or the the big event out in the park. It it's basic relationships, modeling love uh, of God for us in Christ that are that are intentionally put in front of people who don't know Jesus yet. Yeah, and that's just so attractive, and I think particularly attractive in our uh, in our generation. So let's talk about some of the benefits of doing it this way, um, as opposed to the Lone Ranger evangelism where you go out on your own and, yep. and, and maybe do the one-to-one thing. Uh, what are some of, the, some of the main things that you think uh, this model gives us that we wouldn't have otherwise? Yeah, I mean, I think it's beneficial for, for loads of reasons. I think, first of all, it's beneficial for the for the unbeliever in, in the process of conversion because we have to accept that there are other people who are better explaining the gospel 
uh, or someone else's testimony might resonate with them. Or it's um, that the, the, the other people are better at answering the questions that people might have. If someone's got you know, a science question, a science and Christianity question, maybe that's an opportunity to come someone like me. If they've got a philosophical question, it's an opportunity to go with, to someone like you mm-hmm. in, in, mm-hmm. Light of our, in light of our backgrounds. Um, but I also think it's beneficial for the unbeliever in terms of what they should then expect if they are converted. Mm-hmm. Because it's not just that you're converted into nothing, you're converted into a family. Yeah. And so if we show them that early, then that's a real opportunity for them to reflect on the fact of, hey, I know if I if I become a Christian, I'm I'm becoming part of of God's family, and they see that early, both the benefits and sometimes the difficulties of that as well. And I think also it's just it's really good for us as evangelists and and, and as in terms of our pride, uh, I, I think I think I'm always tempted to to think about, oh, you know, if only I could be the one who kind of leads them to the mm-hmm. Lord. Mm-hmm. And I think this actually humbles us and helps us to recognize that other people need to be involved. And that's really good. I remember when I was in London, there was a young lad in, in our congregation and he brought his uncle to this evangelistic carol service that we were doing at Christmas time. And uh, he was clearly really listening in the talk. And then I tried to meet with him and, 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 and he wouldn't, but then he had other conversations with with his with his nephew and then with another church and then he moved and then he went to this other church and then he became a Christian. <laughs> and I remember part of me thinking, ah, oh, you know, you know, I wasn't the one who kind of led him to the Lord. Yeah. And you just think, that's that's stupid. That's that's proud. God yeah. used all kinds of people uh, along the way. Yeah. Amen. Uh, it, it, as you're talking now, I'm thinking of Paul and Corinthians, right? I watered Apollo's planted. I can't remember what the right order was, but there was a lot of hands in this. And God gave the growth. It's ultimately about Him. If exactly. anyone becomes a Christian, He did a miracle there. Exactly. So we're just going to be thrilled for whatever role we get to play in what He's doing in 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 the world. That's beautiful. I I also, as you were talking about the the picture that that unbelievers get of what they're what they're coming into when evangelism involves the whole church, really struck me. It reminded me of. I don't know if the line was in this book or another similar book, but the, the warning that what you win people with is what you win people to. Yep. Um, and so you want to be careful how you appeal to them to come, to, because if you, if you, you want to pull a bait and switch. That's not authentic. It's not genuine. But if the power of the community is what, is what they're drawn to, then it's what they'll know they're, they're asked to contribute to once they get here with us. I, I, it's just so much more powerful. To do it this way, and and one of the striking images from this chapter to me was the idea of um, it, trying to go about evangelism without using the community is is like digging a uh, digging a, a a pit with a toy shovel and then leaning back and resting on the backhoe that's that's sitting there. <laughs> do you remember this image? Yeah, 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 yeah. You've got this power tool suited for the job. Why not use it? And uh, and this is what we're praying the Lord will do through us in our church. Are there any barriers? to this sort of culture of evangelism that you think we ought to pay attention to, should be aware of? Yeah, I mean, I think first of all, before we think about thinking about barriers to community evangelism, I think we need to just work out what barriers there are in our own lives to doing any evangelism at all. Mm-hmm. So I think in a sense that's the that's the first question, because I think sadly there are many Christians, particularly in the Western world, who are just not looking for opportunities to do that as part and parcel of their of their 
daily week. Mm -hmm. And as a result, I think we need to see that there are kind of basically two main reasons why we don't tell people the gospel. I mean, if we're really honest, it's either because, you know, we don't love the gospel enough or we don't love other people enough. And so I think that's the kind of, those are the first two barriers that we need to kind of dwell on in our own lives. And I very much include myself uh, in that. Yeah, man, even as you're saying that, I'm, I'm feeling convicted here on the spot about my lack of love and on how <clears throat> whether we evangelize or not is really a reflection of what our hearts love. I need to sit with that and think about that some more. I, um, I also, I'm also thinking about some what you might call more practical or structural barriers that can make it difficult to evangelize in this way as a community. Sometimes um, we'll be the only Christian that our non-Christian friends know, and it's not easy to see what the access point is for them to our Christian friends. Sometimes those worlds are just so completely divided, or, or part of our life is lived in one place, and part of our life is lived in another place uh, because of where our Christian friends tend to live, and there's not an easy way to, to introduce them, even if we wanted to. Um, and then just living in a city, I mean, one of the things they mentioned in the chapter is that our lives can tend to be very anonymous. Uh, cities or or in the suburbs, people go to work, come home, go inside, stay behind their fences, and, and just live out inside their own little life, uh, whatever... However, they've chosen to customize it. Um, that that's a problem across America, and certainly a problem here in Middle Tennessee. So, I think for us to to be more active in, in engaging unbelievers as individuals, but then also as a congregation, we're going to have to work hard to overcome basic ways of life that are normal now. And I think that's only going to increase over time. Like as Nashville grows as a city, I mean, I think about London, where you've got you've got kind of a group of people who you know because they're your neighbors. And then you've got a group of people you know because of work and yep. a group of people you know because of the hobbies that you do. And they are scattered yep. miles away. So to invite them to church or to show them the people who you gather with on a Sunday, that that's quite a task. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one reason I appreciate the way that the chapter ends with several pages of very practical ideas about where you can start in building a community uh, of evangelism, things like mix your circles of hospitality, yep. you know, which is what we're talking about now. If you've got different worlds, you're going to have to bring them together by inviting some of your non-Christian friends to the same party that you know you're going to have some church friends uh, attending. What are some of the other highlights from the list of suggestions they give that you'd want to, to, to focus on? Yeah, I think, I think a lot of it just starts with being honest about your church life and the great benefits of that. I think that's mm -hmm. a wonderful starting mm -hmm. point. Um, they, they talk about, let me just find it here. They say, honest transparency about life in a Christian congregation can go a long way towards this goal, even if a non-Christian friend doesn't have an opportunity to meet others in your church. Um, so just starting to talk about the great benefits and blessings of being in local church life together. I used to do that all the time uh, in London. I basically boast about our church with, with my neighbors. You know, I'd say, you know, Benjamin's off uh, bird watching right now with a kind of 70 year old in our, in our congregation. And Sarah's just dropping off a meal for um, um, a, a lady who's just had a baby. And, and someone in our church gave us you know, a place to go on holiday for just 70 pounds or whatever it was. Hmm. I'd, just, I'd just be constantly talking about our community life together and the great blessings of it. And then after that, there'll be an opportunity to say, hey, you know, a couple of us 
um, are, are going to talk to the football, do you want to come? Or um, some of us are going to the botanical gardens or some of us are playing a board game. Do you want to kind of come and, and, and be part of that? And obviously that's not evangelism. That's not telling them the gospel, yep. but it's giving them a way into seeing a community living together and loving each other. And then through that, hopefully um, you'll have opportunities to explain the truth of the gospel. That's beautiful. Oh, I, I'm, I want to see this happening all over the life of our congregation. And, and friends, our appeal to you guys as we wrap up this con, con, uh, conversation here is to, is to be the starting point for this. I mean, when I look at the, at the sweep of things God is doing in our church, I'm so encouraged. I've said this multiple times about so many things. And this one right here that we're talking about today is among the things I want to see more growth in, where I'm praying to him to, to, to help us to, to develop and mature as a congregation. And you know, a couple of weeks back, we talked about what to do when you recognize weaknesses or deficiencies in your congregation. Right? What do you do with that discontent? And I think this is an opportunity to come back to that, to that idea and say, you know, some of you may be out there really active in evangelism and wondering where the others are. You know, why are you the one who's doing it? Where, where's your help? And this chapter is maybe frustrating to you because you're not experiencing this, or it could even stir a kind of, a kind of pride of looking down on others who aren't really bought in in the way that you are. Um, I, I know I have to fight that, and I think that remembering that um, that that this is our congregation, our responsibility. Evangelism is not someone else's job, but but every one of our job is an important starting place. And then realizing one of their suggestions that I can I can help build this culture by inviting someone else to do with me what I'm doing. Like if if you've got some good things going evangelistically. Um, Think of yourself as a distributor of opportunity, not a hoarder of yep. it. Uh, don't just keep that relationship to yourself, but think through who has God given you in your church that maybe could learn through tagging along with you. And maybe God will use that person in the relationship you're cultivating in a way he couldn't use or didn't use you. Um, but either way, see yourself as personally responsible in an everyday sense for helping others in the congregation be faithful to our calling as evangelists. And let's all pray together that God will do that work. Uh, we are uh, grateful to you for sticking with us through this conversation and hoping you'll be able to join us for the last conversation in this series next week. Until then, God be with you.